You can go ahead and grab your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, um, you can raise your hand. Our ushers are at the front here. They're going to walk backwards, and we'd love to make sure that you get a copy of God's Word. So just go ahead and put your hand up, and we'll make sure one gets across to you. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, just take this home with you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. We trust that it would be a blessing and encouragement to you as you read it and hear God speak powerfully to you through it. I want to begin by asking you a, a, a couple of questions. Um, when was the last time you were caught in sin? I mean caught, red-handed. And maybe, maybe if you're like, well, I can't remember the last time I was caught in sin. Okay, when was the last time you were confronted in your sin? Now, I want you to kind of get that memory in your head for just a moment, and here's my, my follow-up question to that. Do you remember how you responded? Was it good? Was it like, oh, thank you so, so much for bringing this in to my attention, for pointing out how I am so deeply flawed and have strayed off of the good and righteous path of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or was there a part of you, maybe all of you, that was resistant, defensive, justifying, excusing, deflecting, maybe turning the tables? There's a lot of stories in the Bible about people who are caught in sin or transgressions. One of the most famous is in Joshua chapter 7. Maybe you've read about it before. There's a, a man by the name of Achan. And Achan um, is, is a, a warrior. He's just fought in some battles as the people of God have crossed over into the promised land. God has told the Israelite troops and the people of God to devote all these things and all these people to destruction. They're supposed to kind of purge the land from all evil and idolatry and anything that would grab a hold of their hearts and pull them away from devotion to the lordship of Yahweh God. But Achan, this man has this, this moment of temptation and this moment of weakness where he, he looks and he sees some of the spoils, so some really expensive and valuable things, and they're just left there. I mean, I mean, I mean the people who own them are, are dead, and, and what would be the harm if I just, if I just took them for myself? And, and, and you see, in this moment, he is caught between obedience to God and his word, and clear, flagrant disobedience. And the story, again, I won't belabor it. The story is very simple. He takes it. But it's fascinating because when he's finally confronted in his sin, and he's exposed, maybe that's the better way of saying it, he's exposed in his sin, and he's caught red-handed, he's confronted by Joshua, it's fascinating what he does. He describes how he got to where he landed. And here's what he says. He looked and he saw these things. They caught his eye. And then he says this. He moves from what he saw to what's going on in his heart. He says, and I coveted them. And then the next action he describes about his own behavior is this. Then I took them, and then catch this, and I have hidden them here in my tent. 
And as you hear those words, I wonder if they sound eerily similar to another story you may have read. Because the author of those words is intentionally trying to get you to think back to another story, and that's the story that we're looking at today, the story of Adam and Eve. And the reason those two accounts are so similar is because in many ways, this is the pattern of how sin tends to operate, not just in Achan's life, not just in Adam and Eve's life, but in your life and in my life. It's the normal way sin begins to take a hold of us. We look and we see, we covet, we desire in our hearts what we ought not take for ourselves. We disobey the clear teachings of God. We take for ourselves what's not rightfully ours. And oftentimes, here's what we find ourselves doing, hiding, hiding. The story of Adam And Eve exposes, just like the story of Achan, exposes, listen, the nature of sin. Let's be clear for a moment what sin actually is. You see, sin is rebellion against God. It is a refusal to accept Him as Lord. You see, what sin does is it places oneself in the position of God. It's the de-godding of God. We kick him off his throne, we take the crown, we place it on our own head, and then human beings substitute their own ideas of right and wrong in the place of God's definition of right and wrong. We become the autonomous arbiters of truth and righteousness. We decide for ourselves what will be best for us instead of listening to the one who created us. If you want to boil it all down, um, sin is a rejection of God. And if you want to get really technical about it, Paul in Romans chapter 1 tells us that the heart of all sin, listen, it's a failure to worship God as God and a failure to give thanks to God. But you see, in all of this, one of the things that we often lose sight of is that while sin is against God, God remains the ultimate judge of all sin. And what we often fail to think about in the midst of sin, in the moment of sin, is that all sin has consequences. There's no way around it. All sin has consequences that will flesh themselves out at some point in our lives. This chapter in Genesis chapter 3 has a kind of judicial feel to it. It's almost set up like a courtroom kind of drama where God is the judge and he summons Adam and Eve to come and stand before him. There's a kind of examination that takes place and eventually there's going to become or become a verdict, a judgment. And as this scene unfolds, it carefully informs us about the foundational nature of sin and the foundational impact of sin, okay? It helps us, in other words, understand how we are prone to sin and what we're tempted to do with our sin. And here's what I want you to see throughout this this message here. It tells us what sin is and shows us what sin does, okay? Lock that phrase away in your mind right now. It tells us what sin is, and it shows us what sin does. This is going to be incredibly, incredibly important and relevant to you and to your life if you want to understand how sin is operating in your own heart. Let's read the passage together. 
I want to back up and read verse 7 to kind of gain that context again and pull it in. We'll read just to verse 13. Here's what the Word of God says. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We're going to see very clearly in this passage what sin is and what sin does. I want to show you both of those aspects in every point, three points today. What sin is, what sin does. First, sin is destructive, and here's what it does, listen, and ruins our relationships. Sin is destructive and ruins our relationships. We see that in the first few verses, verses 8 through 10. Now remember again that we, we left off with Adam and Eve failing to stand firm against the schemes of the devil and falling into sin. And as it stands right now, uh, no pun intended, they stand before God naked and ashamed. They cover themselves with fig leaves. Again, man's first attempt at redemption of self-salvation. And, and I just, you need to kind of pay attention to the flow here. There's a, a rapid kind of pace moving throughout this story that I think we can all relate to when it comes to sin. It's usually not a slow, gradual slide into sin. Oftentimes, we find it's very rapid. It grabs a hold of our, our eyes and then our heart and our, our flesh just wants what it wants and we dive into sin. But in, in a moment, like right on cue, okay, after they've covered themselves, right on cue, we have verse 8. Look at this. There's not a, a moment to spare. That's what it feels like as we read this. And they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, I want you to see there's a shift that's taking place here in the original language back to the covenant name of God. Okay, remember, remember when, the safe, when the serpent was using the name of God, he drops the, the, the name Yahweh and he just uses a God. He's trying to, to cause Adam and Eve to forget that their God is, is in covenant with them, that he's a covenant-keeping God, that he's kind and faithful and he's worthy to be obeyed. And all of a sudden right now, Moses, the author of these words, he drops back into the story, Yahweh God is now walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's this, this, listen, it's this careful reminder that there's something serious wrong. Something has been broken. Relationship has been severed. They hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, but more than that, they hear the sound of his voice call out. And you just imagine the scene, where are you? But as one author 
said, what was once a sweet sound to their ears is now a terrifying noise reverberating in their bones. You see, when someone has sinned against God, even the tenderest of voices can become frightening. And once, listen, where they would have run to Yahweh God with joy, they now hide from their God in fear. This is is completely upside down. Things are completely wrecked and ruined. You know, I love one of my favorite parts of the day, especially when my kids were younger, but even still today, I love coming home at the end of the day. And and you know that, you know that, uh, that moment, especially maybe some of you men or some of you ladies who work outside the home, you know, you come home from a long day's work and your young kids are waiting there for you, right? Where, where there's this, this, this sense of anticipation. Sometimes my kids will sit out on the front porch. I'll kind of give my wife the heads up. I'm on way, my way home and my kids will sit out on the front porch and they just, they're waiting, they're looking for me and there's a sense of excitement. And, and you know, maybe when you walk in the door, if they're not expecting you, they hear the sound of your voice and what do they do? They come running to the front door. They want to run into your arms. They, they want to feel the presence and the warm embrace of their father. And so part of this scene here, it's, it's so sad, isn't it? Again, where once they would have run into the arms of their father, now they hear the sound of his voice. And just picture this on a human level. Imagine, fathers, you walked into the door every day, and instead of running into your arms, your kids ran and hid because they were terrified of you. But don't we also know what it's like to be on the other end of this equation? You remember what it's like to be a kid, right? You remember what it's like to run into your father's arms? How about this? Do you remember what it's like? Um, Some of you remember this. I remember this because it happens so frequently. I remember my mom telling me all the time, go to your room and wait till your father gets home. (laughs) More terrifying words had never been spoken in my house. But do you remember, some some of you, again, you know this just like I do so intimately. Do you remember being in your room and waiting? That was part of the torture. And that's good, right? Like you're waiting. You're like, but dad's not coming home for two hours. And your mom's like, yeah, I know. (laughs) I'm going to call him and tell him to stay a little late at work tonight too. But there's this sense, right, where you're waiting and and there's just the the, the fear, it kind of builds. But all of a sudden in your mind, if you're anything like me, that inner lawyer begins to be activated and you start thinking of ways to describe to your father how your mother was really wrong. Or, or how there's, there's, no, there's no reason that you should have been put in your room. I, I didn't do, I don't know what, I don't know why she put me up here. There's this mixture of emotions that stew in your mind right in those moments. You sense guilt and shame because you know you've done something wrong. But at the same time, you almost feel justified in your behavior and you're preparing to argue your case. Either way, there's this sense of fear that builds in your heart. And I think that's exactly where Adam and Eve are in this moment. They hide in fear of God. And everyone from this point forward, listen, who is not covered by the blood of the lamb would be in fear of God. But I want you to notice that their fear is not because of the disposition of God. This is so crucial to see. But rather because of the new condition of their heart. Sin has done something to them and it's done something in them. 
Sin is corruptive and it is destructive, bringing death to everything it touches. The death and destruction here, by the way, is multifaceted. And, and the way it breaks relationships is multifaceted. First, I, just, I want you to see this. Sin first destroys your relationship with yourself, okay? Sin destroys your relationship with yourself. It, it confuses you about who you truly are. It distorts your understanding of your own identity. And that's what we see with Adam and Eve. It confuses their self-perception. Their inner desires are, are distorted, right? They begin to desire things that they, they never previously desired. That's why they cover themselves up with fig leaves. They look, they look at themselves with shame and with guilt and the sense of condemnation. You see, they view themselves very differently because of sin. The relationship with themselves and our relationship with ourselves is fundamentally and foundationally broken because of sin. But it's more than that. As a result of our sin, our relationships with others are broken. It's not just that we look at ourselves differently, we look at other people differently. And again, they, they cover themselves, not because of their own guilt and shame, but in one sense, they hide themselves from each other. They're embarrassed and ashamed now, and, and here's why, because they're, they're distorted by the way they're looking at each other. They feel this sense of insecurity as the other person looks at them, maybe no longer with the same kind of love, cherishing them the way they used to, but now they look at them with disdain. Maybe they view them now as an object, where they once had so much freedom and love in their relationship for one another, now they just look with suspicion, with shame. Their ability to love and to serve one another is now so distorted because of a greater love for self. That's what sin does. Sin produces within every one of us a greater love for ourself than for anybody else. But I want you to see this. The death and destruction that is most significant is the broken relationship with God. This entire text is supposed to give you this feeling of alienation and separation from God, right? right? You have this picture of God walking in the cool of the day. Remember, you know, imagine what they used to enjoy, right? That was the, the, the greatest morning devotions you could possibly ask for. I sat with God. I walked with God. I knew his presence intimately. And now all of a sudden, all I feel is distance and alienation. In Israel, there was undoubtedly this recognition of the inherent nature of sin. But the biggest problem of the fall was not the focus, sorry, not focused on the change in human nature or the heart condition. This is often where we focus, right? When we think of sin and its effects, the effects of the fall, we, th we think personally. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm all twisted up. I desire things I shouldn't desire. My affections are for things that I shouldn't want or love. But here's the way that they thought of it. They, they recognized that human nature was broken because of the fall, that their heart condition was different because of the fall. But more than anything, what they recognized was a loss of the presence of God. If they ever thought about Eden, and think about this. Imagine hearing the stories of Eden from your parents and your great-grandparents and you know, those, those who had first-hand knowledge were passing these stories down. Can you imagine just considering what it must have been like to live in the Garden of Eden? But you see, 
their thoughts weren't primarily about, about the incredible living conditions they enjoyed. They, they weren't sitting back and thinking, man, not primarily, man, imagine how beautiful it was. Imagine the harmony that existed between us and every other creature. Imagine the beauty of marriage that was preserved. Imagine the provision of God, the plenty, the bounty of God. Imagine how everything looked and how everything felt and how everything tasted. I mean, that's not the way they were thinking. You want to know what they were thinking? Imagine what it would have been like to live in the presence of God. The overwhelming loss of paradise was God. That's why throughout all of the rest of the Old Testament, you never hear talk of regaining the comfort of Eden, but regaining access to the presence of God. What do we learn as we look at this first part of verses 8 through 10? I want to just give you three quick takeaways, okay? Here's the first one. The most vile aspect of human sin is not what it did to each of us, but what it did to God, okay? The worst part about sin isn't how it impacted or affected you. It's what it does to God. Which is why David in his famous psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, do you remember what he says? Right? Remember, he, he murdered, committed adultery, but what does he, what, who does he run to first? Where does he go first? And what does he say? He says this. He says, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. You see, all of our sin is, is first and foremost against God. All sin is first and foremost a desecration of God. Now, this desecration does not alter who God is, but it, it deeply dishonors him as God. Uh, secondly, here's a, another takeaway. The most lamentable result of sin is not that it makes people bad, but that it makes God distant. What's the worst part about sin? Which, again, let, let me just remind you of what David says. David, as he repents before God, he asks that God would restore unto him the joy of his salvation. There's a sense of separation and alienation that he experiences because of his sin. He asks God to not hide his face from his sins, but to blot them all out, to create in him a a clean heart, to renew a right spirit within me, he says. Cast me, listen to what he says, not away from your presence. You see, the yearning in our hearts is for goodness and for God, but our direct access to God has been cut off, and the inclination of our hearts is now only evil all the time. That's what the Bible teaches. You're going to see that unfold throughout the rest of the Scriptures. Let me give you one more takeaway. Uh, One day, like Adam and Eve, God will call us to stand before Him and to give an account. And on that day, listen, there will be no hiding from God. And if you are not found in Christ with forgiveness of sins, you will stand before God, the creator and king of the universe, naked and ashamed. And you will stand before him without excuse. Next, let's ask this 
question about what sin is and what sin does, let's look at this response, I should say. Sin is degenerative and compounds our crimes. Keep that courtroom scene in your mind. And think about the nature of sin. It's degenerative. It's progressive. In verses 11 through 13, look at what it says again. Here's the confrontation. He heard the sound of, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Look at the response. Sorry, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Oh, boy. The first, but probably not only, time that Adam slept on the couch. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Do you see what's happening here? There's a spiraling, isn't there? Don't you want your, like you're reading this story and part of you's just like, just stop, stop talking. Because every word, it just gets worse. You have those moments, right? You have those moments in an argument, maybe with your your spouse or with your kids or with your friends where you know you're wrong and you just can't back off. And so what you you just keep on talking and the holes is getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And by the end of it all, you're looking at what you do like, "Ah, I wish I just shut up the first moment I could. God now examines them. He's summoned them, but now he's examining them and he's putting the gears to them, so to speak, tightening the screws. You say, why does God ask questions he already knows the answer to, right? God, God doesn't need to be informed. Agree? He, he knows why they're hiding. He knows what they've done. None of this is a surprise. God is omniscient. He knows all things. So why is God asking these questions? Listen, not that God might be informed, but that Adam and Eve might be humbled. They might be humbled. Let me say it like this. You see, God desires to bring spirit-led conviction in order to produce humble confession so that we avoid eternal condemnation. Let me say that again. God desires to bring spirit-led conviction in order to produce humble confession so that we avoid eternal condemnation. But here what we see in Adam and Eve is that the terrible, shocking nature of sin. Adam and Eve were asked questions designed to bring them to a point of confession and repentance. But far from doing as they should have done, our first parents actually compounded the sin. They lie, they squirm, they excuse, they shift blame, they minimize their sin. Listen to this. You need to hear, some of you need to hear this. They minimize their sin and they maximize their circumstances. Catch that? Here's my question. How can we can see and acknowledge how foolish it is when Adam and Eve do this, but not when we do this? <laughs> And we do do this, don't we? 
We do this kind of thing all the time, like I mentioned at the beginning. This, this is the kind of pattern that sinful people follow. This is what we do. There's this tendency in all of us to avoid owning our sin and to pass the buck. You see, there's a, a degenerative nature to sin. It's progressive. It's compounding. And unless it's checked immediately by faith, sin is like yeast that works through the whole batch of dough. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he, he loved this passage, and he had so many phenomenal things to say about this, so uh, insightful. I just want to read you a paragraph that he wrote. I think it was so good, I couldn't say it any better. So just listen. It's not going to be on the screen. Just listen. Let it kind of saturate your heart and mind and marinate in this for a moment. He says this. He says, let us learn then that this perversion and stupidity I love that he doesn't mince words. Always accompany sin and that sinners accuse themselves by their excuses and betray themselves by their defense, especially before God. This, he says, is the nature of sin. Unless God immediately provides a cure and calls the sinner back, he flees endlessly from God, and by excusing his sin with lies, heaps sin upon sin until he arrives at blasphemy and despair. Thus, sin by its own gravitation always draws with it another sin and brings on eternal destruction till finally the sinful person would rather accuse God than acknowledge his own sin. Adam, he says, should have said, Lord, I have sinned, but he does not do this. He accuses God of sin and says in reality, Thou, Lord, hast sinned. For I would have remained holy in paradise after eating of the fruit if thou hadst kept quiet. This is in reality the meaning of his words when he says, I would not have fled if thy voice had not frightened me. You hear what he's saying? He said, God, I only hid because I heard you coming. God, this is your fault. I would have been just fine. But we know that's not true. But you see, we can compound our sin even when we appear to be confessing it. That's the crazy part. That's how corrosive sin is, how degenerative sin is. Even while confessing it, we can be compounding it. On the surface, Adam and Eve, isn't this amazing? They appear, they appear to be confessing their sin, to acknowledge their sin. I mean, I mean, they say, don't they, I ate it. Both Adam and Eve acknowledged that they ate. But though they gave the appearance of confessing their sin, they're not actually confessing it at all. They're simply admitting only what cannot be denied. And even while admitting this, what's crazy is that they're actually pleading extenuating circumstances, right? In a court of law, this would be called a plea of confession and avoidance. In other words, it admits the fact, but it denies the guilt on the basis of the circumstances. Look at I, I can't be, yes, I did it, but I'm not responsible because of all these other things. Now, are circumstances relevant to us falling into sin? Absolutely they are. Sometimes our background 
impacts the kind of life and even disposition and proclivities that, that we have. Sometimes immediate circumstances can uh, produce stress in our lives that can obviously make sin more appealing. Are there factors that help lead us into sin? Yes. Do we have an enemy that wants to tempt us into sin? Absolutely. We saw that last week. But here's what we need to understand. Neither our circumstances nor our great adversary are ever responsible for our sin. Only we are responsible for our sin. Okay, so here's, here's, here's the natural question. Okay, well, what should I do? If it's not obvious already, what should I do when I'm caught in sin? What should I do when I'm confronted with sin? What should I do when I recognize my sin? Okay, so I, here's my deal here. Is this on the, yeah, there you go, there's, there's the line. I, I don't care if somebody's brought it to your attention. I don't care if you've, you've been caught red-handed. I, I don't care if you're sitting alone in the morning with your Bible open, reading the scriptures, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God just like a lazy, beam to your heart points out sin in your life. Here's the question. What do you do when you see sin? How do you respond? And and it should be obvious, but let's again, sometimes the best thing to do is just put the, the obvious things right up in front of our face so there's no way of getting around it. Here's the first thing we do. Don't hide it. Expose it. It's so simple, isn't it? And yet, how often are we just like Adam and Eve? We're like, we're hiding our sin. We're covering it up. We're trying to get rid of any of the, the traces of sin that might, might allow people to see what we've actually done. We're experts at hiding our sin. And many of us, sadly, are infants at exposing our sin. And the scriptures are so clear about this, okay? The way you battle sin is first by bringing sin into the light, right? To keep it in the darkness is a great way to continue to live in sin, to spiral out of control in your sin, and ultimately to find yourself eternally damned because of your sin. But the Bible, the Bible tells us, listen, instead of hiding it, expose it. Bring it into the light, Secondly, uh, do this. Don't blame it. Own it. Sometimes our sin is, is so obvious. Like Adam and Eve, we're like, yeah, the fruit's beside me. Can't deny it. I did it. But that's always a flag, by the way. If you ever have to throw in a but in your repentance, it's not real repentance, okay? Some of your spouses have been telling you that for years and you're not listening. Hear it from up here, okay? If you throw any kind of but, any kind of excuse, any kind of justification, I don't care how relevant and true it is, it likely is indicating you are not truly repentant for what you've done. Stop excusing your sin and own it. Acknowledge, confess, agree with God about your sin. I did it. I shouldn't have done it. It was foolish. It's sin against God and it's sin against you. And I think, can I just say to some of you in here, the the, the reason why this is so hard to do with people horizontally in your life is because you're not doing it first vertically with God. You just, you think your sin is just about you and some other person. It's not just about you and your spouse or you and your kids or you and your coworkers or, or you and your small group leader. 
It's, it's like David said, it's against God. Your, your sin is rebellion and rejection of God's lordship in your life. It's a refusal, listen, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's a refusal to submit your life and surrender to him and say, God, I'm yours. Your word rules me. You are my king. And the reason we want to excuse our sin so often is because we fail to remember who our sin is first and foremost against. I'm telling you, when you get right with God first, it's really easy. When, when you know you've gone to the one who you have harmed most in your sin, it's a lot easier to those who you've harmed as well, but not as much. Amen? All right, let me give you one more. Don't excuse it, repent of it. It's one thing to own it. It's another thing to truly repent of it. Don't excuse it. Don't just try to sweep it under the rug. You know, the biblical term for repentance is really important. It means to do a 180, a full-on change in direction, okay? So, so the, way, the way that I often think about repentance is like this. You're walking in a particular direction towards your sin. You want your sin. You love your sin. You desire your sin. You're going after your sin. And then all of a sudden, your sin is exposed and you're stopped dead in your tracks. You can say here and you can stop here and say, yes, my sin is wrong. Yes, it's a problem. Yes, I did it. But that's not necessarily true repentance. You want to know what true repentance is? It's when you confess it and forsake it and turn away from it. True repentance, listen, is when you turn your back to the sin you committed. You acknowledge it before God and others. You turn and you begin to walk in the other direction. You walk back towards God, towards his word, towards obedience. And oftentimes it's that obedience that is proving that your repentance was genuine. Don't excuse it, repent of it. Why? Why is this so hard? That's, isn't that the question that you wrestle with in your own heart? Why is this so hard? Why do I struggle to do this the way I should? That's because lastly, sin is deceptive and prevents our pardon. That's what sin is and that's what sin does. It's deceptive and it often prevents our pardon. And, and really what I want to just do is point something out from this entire passage that I think, I think the Spirit of God is carefully woven in. You see, nothing blinds the heart like sin. Nothing. Nothing clouds your, your spiritual vision like sin. And one of the scariest parts of the impact of sin is how it blinds us even, listen to this, this is crazy, even to the intervention of our Savior. I think the saddest part of this whole account is that Adam and Eve cannot see God's mercy and grace in the moment. They can't see it. They're like a horse with blinders. They're so entrenched in their sin. They're, they're so worried about what they're, they're losing. They cannot even see that in this entire process, God has been lovingly and graciously trying to woo them to repentance. Can't see the kindness of God. I don't know if, if they've just begun to view God as some kind of vindictive judge, if the fear that has been produced in their heart because of sin causes them to have a distorted image of God, then now God is just going to be angry and vindictive, and this is his fault, anyways. Whatever it is, there's something deceptive about sin. Something that prevents us from even seeing God's mercy and grace.
There's, there's an old hymn that says, um, Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee, hiding in thee, hiding in thee. Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. And that's such a, a beautiful, beautiful song. But I want you to know that while that's true for many, it's only true. It's only true for those who have repented of their sin and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith. And you see, at this point, Adam and Eve were not hiding in Christ. They were hiding from Christ. And while this story unfolds fairly rapidly, I I want you to see again, there were clear moments of grace that they just simply, for whatever reason, could not see. I mean, think about this act of grace. In the moment that God came to them, they were still alive. (laughs) Do, Do you remember what God promised them if they ate from the fruit of the tree? Eat this and you will die. I mean, there is grace all over. The fact that they're, they're, they're there, they're breathing, they're talking, they're alive is, is an indication of God's grace and mercy even in this moment. How about this? God, the heavenly hound, as Spurgeon called him, sought them out in their sin. I mean, that's grace. That's, isn't that, I mean, could you imagine if it was always dependent upon us to come run back to God in, in, our, in our sin? If we're so clouded and we're so confused and so distorted in our sin, not, here's the, here's, you want to know what the truth is? This is amazing, okay? In your sin, in your sin, you would never choose God if he didn't first choose to come after you. Never. But God, this is grace. God runs after them. He comes to them and he finds them hiding and he still, he still doesn't look at them and go, you guys are pathetic. What are you doing hiding from me? A kid hiding behind a curtain or just closing his eyes thinking, well, if I can't see you, you, you must not be able to see me. He came after them instead of leaving them in their sin and shame. Third, just listen, listen to this, Grace. He, he kindly questions them, giving them the opportunity to come clean and to come back to him. You know what the scriptures say? It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We sang that, didn't we? Can you see that here? God's just, he's not rendering judgment yet. He's just like, look, come, come, come on. Come on, come forward with it. Please don't, don't hide your sin. I know what you've done. Just bring it forward. Bring it out. Come out of the darkness in and into the light. I promise you it's, it's always going to be better for you if, if you come forward with your sin. By the way, that's a great principle. It is so much better to expose your sin than to be caught in your sin, okay? Some of you today, I just I want to give you a warning. Some of you, you're living in some, some sin today. You're hiding your sin and you think, I haven't got caught yet. I'll never get caught. Listen, if you don't come forward with your sin, the chances of you being caught and doing exponentially more damage, it increases with every single moment, every single day. And God is saying maybe to some of you today, come, come on, it's time, it's time. Listen to this this last piece of grace. Even when they blamed God, he was so patient with them. Even, Even when they... Even when they wanted to hurl insults at God, say, God, this is your fault. 
mean, at that moment, can, can we at least acknowledge at that moment God would have been justified in striking them dead on the spot? He's so patient. We see so much in this passage about the the nature and impact of sin, but can we see what's more important and and more foundational, more foundational? It's this. We see in this passage the nature of God and the impact of grace. And sin, it's so deceptive that it blinds us to our only hope, God and his merciful grace. Sin is so deceptive, we can convince ourselves that we don't even need to be Think about how deceptive sin is in your life. There's some even in this room, I think, who are convincing themselves, I don't need to be saved. My sin's not that bad. I'm not bad compared to a lot of other people. And, and, And God probably, I've done enough good in my life that maybe it will outweigh the bad. I'm fine with God. There are so many people in our world who are deceived by this. But I I wonder, listen, if some of the reason we don't run back to God in repentance is not just that we're deceived about ourselves and the reality of our sin, we're deceived about the character and nature of God and His grace. Listen, in this passage, what we see is, is so clear. Sin is real. Sin separates us from God. Sin destroys. It's degenerative. It's deceptive. But in the shame of our sin, it also deceives us into believing that we are beyond God's grace. Some of us in here, you've believed this lie. You're deceived. You, you think you're beyond God's grace. You think there's no way God could save you. You, you. you don't know how bad I've been. You don't know how long I've been walking in my sin. You don't know the depths, the depths, the depravity of my life. There's no way God would save a sinner like me. And listen, can I, just, can I just say to all of you in here, the verdict's already in, okay? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the verdict. Every person here is under the same condemnation. Every single person here has sinned, and we all deserve, every one of us deserves the just wrath of God. Amen? Not one person in here is going to be able to stand before God on the final day and go, God, I'm different than everybody else. I don't deserve your judgment. But can I just remind you that though all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the verdict is in. But God, listen to what Paul says, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, God loves sinners. That's that's the verdict that we get from this story as well. That's the greater verdict. God loves sinners. He saves us not when we're good and perfect and cleaned up. He saves us when we're rebels, rejecting him, de-godding God. When we're enemies of God, that's when he chooses to save us. He brings us low so that he can lift us back up. You see, the greatest power of sin is its ability to deceive us about the nature and character of God. Don't be deceived, loved ones. Do not let the deception of sin prevent your pardon from God. I, I was thinking about this. You know, Pastor Yosef, he mentioned the prodigal uh, son story a couple weeks back when he preached. And, and, you know, we know that story. It's so familiar. The prodigal who, who rejects the father, he ends up turning his back on the father. He goes out. He takes the inheritance. He, in effect, says to the father, I wish you were dead. Give me my money. I don't want you. 
And what does he do? He goes, he squanders it all. He lives a licentious life of sin and rebellion and wickedness. And then he gets to this place of utter brokenness. He hits rock bottom, I think like few people. But it's interesting what he says, right? You remember what he says? He says, you know what? I've got nothing. Even the pigs are are eating better than me. At least the servants in my father's house eat better than this. And so he he lets his his shame and his guilt and his despair drive him back to the father's house. But I want to remind you, you remember how the father uh, greets him? He's not looking for his son to come groveling. He's not looking for his son to to come with all of this guilt and condemnation. The father, in fact, he he runs. He runs to meet his son. He lavishes gifts upon him. He wraps his arms around him. He kisses him. He slaughters a fattened calf for him. He holds a feast for him. They sing and they party. And part of what I kept thinking about this week as I thought about this passage is, how much quicker do you think the son would have run back to the father if he simply remembered who his father was? Just remember that his his father was good. His father was kind and merciful and gracious. I just wonder how how often we don't run quickly back into the arms of God because we're so busy. Listen, there's a place for shame and guilt. And and listen, we feel shame and guilt because we're guilty. But how often just living in shame and guilt prevents us from, from quickly running back to the Father. And what we need most of all is not, yes, shame and guilt and sin, but more than that, what we need is this. We, reme- we need the reminder of the character of God. This is who our Father is. He is merciful and kind. He's steadfast in His love. He lavishes grace upon all who come to Him. And I want to compel some of you, I want to call some of you today to repentance, not simply increasing and heaping upon you the guilt and shame of sin. You maybe have been living there far too long, but I simply want to compel you to come running into the arms of Father by increasing your understanding of His mercy and grace. Today, just listen, I want you to consider this. Think about the grace of God in your life. Today, you are still alive and breathing because of the mercy and grace of God. Today, the heavenly hound comes after you in love. He's not content to just let you sit in your sin and to hide in your sin. The heavenly hound, he comes running after you in love today. Today, he comes graciously and tenderly calling you through his word and spirit to confess your sins and to repent, to turn from them. And today, as 1 Peter 3, 9 says, he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance today. Today, the scriptures say, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Turn to him. For you who are in Christ, maybe you're living in sin today and you know it, turn back to him and to all of you who hid not from him, but lives are hidden in him. Listen, here's the response. Praise the Lord. Though your sins are many, his mercy is is more. Amen? Let's stand together and let's declare that.